You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, this is Greg LeBlanc, and this is Unsiloed, and I'm here with Tom Davenport. Tom teaches at Babson primarily, but you've also been teaching at Oxford, I think, recently. You've taught at HBS. You do work with Deloitte. I think you're also doing some stuff with MIT. I don't know how you have time to do all this stuff and write a whole bunch of books. And I I brought some books with me here that I've acquired over the years, most recent of which is this one, The AI Advantage. Prior to that, we had big data at work, keeping up with the quants. Uh, You're walking down memory lane here. We've got this one, Judgment Calls. We've got Analytics at Work. And the oldest one I, I couldn't find, but it's Making Money from Analytics or so was the first one, the 2007. Competing on Analytics. Yeah. That was the bestseller among that set of books that you showed. And then I redid it in 2017, a new version. But I started writing them earlier. I, my first book was in, business book was in 1993, I think. It was about business process reengineering. So you've been at this for a long time, and I don't mean just the writing. I mean the thinking about analytics, the thinking about automation, the thinking about artificial intelligence. In fact, in the most recent book, you went back a little ways in time and talked about how we got to where we are now and how artificial intelligence, I mean, the, the meaning of the word sort of shifts over time and things that maybe once were considered artificial intelligence are just considered normal business processes now. Could you walk us through a little bit about the rise and the fall and the rise and the ice ages and the non-ice ages, the hopes and and fears and dreams? Yeah, the winters and the springs, yeah. This all really got going when I was way too young to pay any attention. It was 1956 when I, I think I was two years old. But when I started paying attention to AI, it was one of the springs, you know, when things were flowering and everybody was all excited about it in the 80s and 90s. And usually there's one technology that gets everybody excited. Now it's deep learning. But then it was rule-based expert systems, Mm -hmm. and people were going to use those to kind of capture expertise and package it up in these systems that could, you know, give you lots of answers and recommendations. And it didn't prove to work very well. I mean, it worked pretty well on a small scale, but it didn't scale very well. If you've got a lot of rules, they started to conflict, and it was really hard to upgrade them. So, Things started to die down and we went into another winter. There had been previous winters when, I don't know, one winter sort of happened when like neural networks weren't really going to pay off. And then arguably the latest spring was because neural networks did prove to pay off and people figured out a way around some technical problems, mostly some Canadian researchers. And now I think we're in the spring to end all springs, it's hard to see that we'll abandon AI entirely again. It's so popular. There's so many companies working on it, so many startups. But, you know, I think there is some disillusionment maybe about the hype of it. But in general, it is quite well established. Yeah. So even though I think we can all agree that the prospects are unlimited, you also reference in your book some of the failures and some of the disappointments. And, and you mentioned, for instance, IBM's Watson, which I think has gotten quite a bit of press. There was a lot of hype around the Jeopardy 
victories and, and so forth. But at the end of the day, I think Watson's turned out to be something of a, of a disappointment. Could you talk a little bit about why you think so many initiatives around, and I think you used the term cognitive companies. You use the word cognitive to kind of describe a lot of, more broadly, what other people might describe as AI. Why some of those initiatives tend to fail or fizzle or fail to meet expectations? Well, yeah, first on that term, I was kind of tired of the term AI and it had been around for such a long time. I thought it'd be nice to have a new term. I always thought of it as being highly synonymous with AI, but I think it got sort of washed away in the problem surrounding Watson because IBM was the most aggressive user of that cognitive term. And people started to tell me that if I used it, you know, I was part of an IBM plot (laughs) or something like that. So I did go back largely to AI. With regard to the failures, I was as impressed as anybody, maybe more than most, with the Watson Jeopardy But most people didn't realize how long it took for them to pull off that one very difficult task. And then after it was completed, they, I think, bit off an even more difficult task, which is to cure or treat cancer, diagnose, cure, and treat cancer. And that turns out to be a really, really hard problem. And I don't know why they decided that that was going to be the next thing they were going to go for. Obviously, it's important to the world, but extremely difficult to address. And they really failed at it, arguably. I mean, they did sell some of the Watson Oncology Advisor for a while, but I don't think they're selling it anymore. And there's some really quite prominent failures that involved a lot of money down the drain and very little progress made, despite a lot of publicity that, oh, you know, we're already curing cancer with this thing. There was a 60-minute story, and some of the press accounts were quite breathless. So I think it was really just an imbalance between what was technically possible at the time and the amount of marketing that was devoted to this. I mean, IBM was buying five and six page ads, full page ads in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and getting everybody excited about it. I never quite understood the Bob Dylan connection. They used him in some of their ads and all this media hype. And I don't know, I appealed to IBM to let me work with some other academic collaborators and write some case studies about what was really happening. And they said, no, we won't do that at all. Even for free, I was willing to do it. But I think they were maybe starting to see this was a lot harder than they had anticipated, although the marketing continued for a while. I think, you know, IBM Watson was a fairly technically capable set of systems, but not capable enough to solve the kinds of problems that they set out to solve. So it seems that to be very effective, these systems can't simply be about transferring knowledge from humans to machines, but really baking into the machines a capacity for learning that may be inspired by the way people learn, but ultimately they have to have mechanisms that allow for continuous learning. Yeah, I mean, machine learning now is, of course, the most popular approach to AI. It's also the oldest one. It's been around forever. There was a bit of machine learning in IBM Watson, but there was some other semantic-oriented stuff which hasn't proven to be as successful. But yeah, I mean, machine learning can do a lot. It's, to me, a pretty straightforward extension of analytics and big data and so on. It's, you know, all statistical in nature, and it makes pretty effective predictions. But it's still all based on past data. If you don't have good past data, 
it's not so good. But in general, it works out pretty well. Now, in a lot of your writing, you talk about the difficulties faced by what we might call legacy companies or existing companies in adopting new technologies, in particular new cognitive technologies. And you contrast this with the companies that really utilize it most effectively, which turn out to be kind of digital first companies or companies that embrace these technologies fairly early on. And some people would argue that the, the legacy companies just simply can't ever adopt these technologies as effectively as the new companies because of the legacy decision-making and the legacy organizational structure. So they would say that to try and reform them is, is hopeless, but I think you're much more optimistic than that. Well, I try to be, and certainly there are some examples of companies that do this pretty well. I was listening to a podcast this morning about an organization I've been quite interested in for a while in China, Ping on started out as a property and casualty insurance company, I think 33 years ago, and now has just built itself into a tech company with five different what it calls ecosystems. And they have intelligent telemedicine and they have intelligent wealth management and they use facial recognition to determine whether you are who you say you are when you apply for credit. I mean, just incredibly wealthy company. I think $159 billion in annual revenues, growing on average 25% a year for those 33 years. Started out as a very boring property and casualty insurance company. But at some point, the CEO decided, you know, we're going to be a technology company as much as anything else. And fantastically successful. So I think they're a great illustration of what can be accomplished if you set out to do this sort of stuff. You know, they have 2,000 data scientists on the payroll. They spend well over a billion dollars a year in R&D. It just could be possible for a lot of other organizations to do that. I mean, you, you have companies like J.P. Morgan Chase that are spending lots and lots of money, and they hired away some of the brightest academic data science faculty in the world, but so far it hasn't really manifested itself much in any visible outcomes. I hope it will at some point. I think they may even be spending more than Ping An is on AI-related research. Yeah, I'd love to know your, like, why you think that is. If we go back to your original, the first of those books that I mentioned, Competing on Analytics, that came out not too long before I started teaching the data and decisions class at Berkeley. And that was also right around the time when Moneyball, you may remember, came out. And I think the idea that everybody shared at that time was that if you can build out a good analytics capability, then you can have a competitive advantage against the other companies in your industry. But inevitably, that's something that's fleeting to the extent that analytics is, is now commodified because everybody can go build data science teams. Everybody can go and buy the open source software. And it's no longer really an advantage as much as it is sort of a table stakes for any company. Every baseball team has analytics in substantial numbers, although I do think that there are still some teams and certainly some companies that are able to sort of use the analytics better. I mean, you take now the Tampa Bay Rays, which I think are the kind of contemporary equivalent of the Oakland A's. Like the Oakland A's, they haven't actually won a World Series, but they played in one last time and they have very low payroll and so on. And they made changes. They didn't have really a conventional pitching staff. It's like everybody was considered a relief pitcher on that team. And they did lots of shifting and so on. So, 
in general, you know, you could argue the Houston Astros were highly analytical as well, but they maybe took things a little too far and cheated to get their data. But I think there's still advantages in execution related to analytics, but you're right. Certainly the idea of generating these analytics is highly commodified in certainly in professional sports and in a lot of banking, you'd certainly say it's pretty commoditized. Well, then what does allow you to differentiate? I mean, we know that having better data or having more data or having more relevant data is certainly going to help. But in terms of your capabilities, what makes for a good, effective adoption of analytics in your organization? Is, does it have to do with the internal organization of where you distribute the decision-making? You know, where do you park the expertise? Is it about culture? How do you make the best use of these tools which exist more or less off the shelf? Yeah, I think the real differentiator is leadership. This podcast was with the guy who's the head of innovation at Ping On this morning, and I was listening to him, and he said, it's not really the innovation people that make the difference. It's the most senior decision makers. And Peter Ma, this guy who founded the company, is just an absolute believer in this stuff. And I, you know, I've seen that in other companies in the U.S. as well. I was friendly with this guy named Gary Loveman, who became the CEO of Harrah's, which then became Caesars. He had been a Harvard Business School professor, and I knew him there, and our kids played Little League Baseball together, and he gave me a lot of access to what they were doing, and it was really quite impressive. I learned a lot of lessons from it. One, analytics doesn't make all your problems go away. They declared bankruptcy at one point. But in general, I think having somebody like him as the CEO really turned that company around. They became the world's largest gaming firm. They made a huge amount of money for a while. Gary made a fantastic amount of money. He says he's going to give most of it away eventually. But then he left and he thought, well, he'd been there close to a decade. I think maybe it would be inculcated in the company broadly enough so it wouldn't go away. But no, it didn't go away. So a new leader came in and had a different idea of how you run a business. And there aren't very many leaders still who are highly oriented to analytics and database decision making and so on. So I think that is the limiting factor in many organizations. Well, do you think that they need to understand it to quite the degree as Gary Lubman? Gary Lubman was a PhD from, from MIT. So he presumably had quite a bit of technical expertise are you saying that in order for the leaders of an organization to really grasp the potential and to uh, execute well on analytics initiatives, they need to have some, some technical background? Or is there hope yet for the more well-rounded, shall we say, MBA students out there? I think you don't have to have that level of expertise, certainly, but you have to be a believer in you know, its effectiveness. I saw one study, I think it was sponsored by Splunk, a survey of senior executives, and it was anonymous, of course, and a lot of them admitted, I forget the exact percentage, seemed like close to 80%, that they didn't really have analytical skills and that they felt they were too old to acquire analytical skills. And, it, you know, that explains a lot, I think. This stuff is not nuclear physics. It's not that hard to learn at least enough to understand how it fits within your business. And if you didn't do so well in your statistics class and in the MBA program or whatever, 
you studied English literature or you spent too much time in calculus instead of statistics, I think you might say, eh, I don't, I don't really want to get into that either for me or for my company, because ultimately, you know, you're turning over a lot of your decision-making authority to smart machines, and that's uncomfortable for a lot of people. If I go through this entire stack of books of yours, I don't see any Python code. No, no. Yeah, I'm a sociologist by academic background. I mean, I did teach statistics to Harvard undergraduates for a while, but I'm sure I was not the world's greatest at doing that. So you don't have to understand it in detail to be a believer, just like you don't have to understand all the physics behind internal combustion to be a great race car driver. Well, so then how did you wind up going from uh, sociology into analytics? Analytics paid much better. (laughs) When I was in graduate school, I'd done a fair amount of statistical computing, even as an undergraduate with the early, you know, mainframe-based programs. And so I paid my way mostly through the National Science Foundation, and I paid my way through graduate school. I did it by providing statistical computing advice to social scientists. It wasn't terribly sophisticated for the most part. I was going to become a regular sociologist. I guess I was for a while. I taught at the University of Chicago for a year. I didn't like that. I broke up with my fiance there and then left. I taught at Harvard for a year. I got more and more interested in the computing side and less and less interested in the sociology side. And I didn't really like the idea at all of sitting in my office all day to write papers that maybe five or six other academics around the world would read. And so I kind of concluded, well, maybe I need to be a consultant instead of an academic. And I became a consultant, finally. I was going to go and get an MBA. I got rejected from Harvard Business School, which still shocks me, even though I had a PhD from Harvard at the time, and I'd done really well on my grades and my, I don't know, I guess I thought PhDs didn't make good business people. But I did get into MIT. I was all set to go. And then I got a consulting job in IT strategy firm, and it was great. But then I gravitated toward research and thought leadership kind of stuff in that consulting firm. And so I, you know, I've always liked work that will influence the practice of management, whether it's in a consulting firm or a business school, that's pretty much what I've done. You know, computing and big data and analytics and so on. The analytics kind of came out of knowledge management. I did knowledge management for quite a while when it was really popular. I think I co-authored the best-selling book still on knowledge management, although it's not selling too many copies now. I had a bunch of companies I was working with to sponsor our research, and I tried to say to them, you know, look, we've really considered text-based knowledge and even, you know, knowledge implicit in people's heads a lot, but we haven't really considered knowledge derived from data, which is another word from analytics. And most of them were not very interested at all. But I did have two sponsors, SAS and Intel, not surprising, I suppose, who said, yeah, we're interested in that. Why don't you do some research on that? And that's eventually what became competing on analytics. Yeah. I mean, if you remember back in the the days, that time when we were thinking about strategy, we're thinking about resources and capabilities, right? And it went from being these physical resources to the human capital resources and the capabilities went from being able to get oil out of the ground to being able to make better decisions and have intellectual property and so forth. And now with all the discussion about data and analytics, I mean, it's kind of, that's resources and capabilities revisited, but with with a very different frame, right? How do you get the best data and how do you make the best use of that data? 
Yeah, exactly. And fortunately for me, you're probably not as old as I am, but when I first got into this consulting firm, there was a strong focus on using data to make decisions and so on. But in general, it became a very technical field and people were only worried about what type of data warehouse to use and what software to use. And there was very little about what difference it made to the business. And I was fortunate to stumble into an area where nobody had done much of anything for a while. Now it's, of course, flooded everything. Well, in consulting, I mean, you spend at least as much time trying to figure out the way things work in the organization, right? You're actually doing kind of sociological work on top of the technical work. Have you found that your ability to communicate the insights and to work with the decision makers within the organization is essential for getting that kind of organizational change? I think it is for any really good consultant. I don't I've gotten so jaded. I don't really have the patience to do much consulting anymore. You know, after a day in an organization, I'm exhausted. I want to move on to another one. But I think in general, and we're finding this a lot in AI and analytics, that it's the people who can connect the numbers to the business, the analytics outcomes to the business that are really driving the success. I remember once I was speaking one of my early analytics speaking engagements was at Bank of America. And it wasn't their first analytics summit. It was their second one. I didn't ask them why they didn't invite me to the first one. But in any case, they whispered to me before I went on the stage, you'll be glad to know that we only invited the heavy quants this time. We didn't let any of the light quants in. And I was rude enough to even say in my talk, I understand that none of the light quants are here. And I said, that's too bad because you heavy quants aren't going to do nearly as good a job or be nearly as successful without those people who can translate it to the rest of the business. And I think a lot of organizations realize that now there was a pretty good McKinsey article about translators. Some people call them purple people, you know, have a little bit of quant knowledge and a little bit of business knowledge and can make that connection. And I think that's a really important skill. Yeah, I think McKinsey about 10 years ago said that there's going to be this huge data science bottleneck. And then they shifted gears and said that it's really a bottleneck with data savvy managers or these people who can kind of sit at the interface. And we've been working in business education for a long time. And when data started getting big, we did some things at Berkeley to try and bring data scientists from other schools together with our MBAs and put them in some classes together and have them work on projects together. And it really was kind of it was a little bit like oil and water, I think you could say, for a little while until they emulsified somehow and got together. But I've kind of flipped back and forth between teaching business skills to technical people and kind of technical skills to business people. Which do you think is easier? We talk a lot about, in the HR space, about hiring for things you can't teach and then teaching the rest after the hire. So which is easier to instill post-hire and which, which do you have to hope that you have to begin with? Can you teach the business people technical stuff or vice versa? I don't think that either of them are particularly hard to teach if the motivation is there. I think that's the key element. So, you know, you run across a lot of data scientists who couldn't care less what business they're working in. What really motivates them is fooling around with algorithms and finding the best fitting one and so on. And that's fine, but most of those algorithms are not really going to get deployed successfully. Then certainly you have way too many business people who don't want to learn enough about technology now. I think every business succeeds on the basis of its use of technology. But 
neither of them are that hard to learn. It's just you've got to want it. And we've managed to create a lot of people on both sides who think it's not necessary to learn about the other side. And I think that's unfortunate. You know, you're, you're sitting at the API between, you know, academia and business. You have a foot in both camps. Are business schools doing all they, they can do to um, help translate cutting-edge insight inside academia into the business world? And then the flip side of that is is the business world. And I think machine learning is one scientific discipline where so much of the innovation is happening in, in the private sector. It's not happening in, in universities. You know, are universities doing a good enough job of learning from what's happening out there in the world? No, I would say. Next question. Uh, <laughs> this is a particular passion of mine, particularly for business schools. I don't think it's as bad in other professional schools, although I, you know, I've never taught in them. But my sense is in medical schools, people do want their research to go into practice. There's a whole word for it, translational medicine. In law schools, you see well-known law professors arguing before the Supreme Court, et cetera. So business schools, we've kind of gotten off track. I think there were some early foundation reports that said that business schools weren't rigorous enough. And so they shifted radically in the other direction, preferred rigor over relevance to a very large degree. And it, I think it's slowly starting to shift back, but very slowly. And the sad fact is the vast majority of what business school faculty do, I mean, not only does nobody ever read it in business, they can't even sign it to their students for the most part because it's unreadable. So I think this is a big problem. You're right, it is related to the data science connection to business. And I was writing about the importance of those translators. And I, I said, they get second class status, just like the people who are relatively applied in business schools get somewhat second class status sometimes. And I, I used the same term to explain it. I called it physics envy, where everybody thinks that if something is really technically abstruse, it must be smarter or more valuable somehow. And I think it's really done a lot of harm in the world, that physics envy. It's not just the, the rigor, but also the specialization, right? So when you specialize, then you have a way of evaluating. You know, you can create a community of evaluators. And so, you know, you have academic departments and they can say, well, this, is, this belongs in this department or this belongs in that department. Well, yeah, what they say about getting your PhD, you learn more and more about less and less until eventually you know everything about nothing. So, <laughs> Well, does this say anything about the business model of the business school going forward? You know, we've seen disruption in so many other areas. We've seen startups disrupt incumbents. Is there a way that business schools can reinvent themselves somewhat? Part of this has to do with their use of data. I mean, I think that the business schools are not using data as much as they could. They're not using analytics as much as they could just on their existing ways of doing business, like identifying you know, who they should be admitting and identifying which classes make an impact or you know, organizing teams or, or whatever it is that they're currently doing. They could be done better with analytics. Yeah, I mean, that's true of the whole university. I was looking at my bookshelf over here. I have a book that I recently got called Big Data on Campus, and it's full of examples of schools that are starting to use analytics for things like admissions, fundraising, it works really well for, but various other kinds of keeping students from leaving, identifying potential triters. 
But yeah, educationally, I think we probably need a new business model in business schools and maybe in general in universities. They've gotten way too expensive for many people. And this idea that you learn everything you need to know in four years and then never have to go back to school is totally nutty. But on the research side, I think the model's really broken and I'm not sure how that's going to change. There have been some movements in this direction. I don't know if you've seen this magazine, Biz. Ed, which is put out by the AACSB, they had an interesting article arguing that it was not only inefficient to create all this research that nobody needs, it's basically immoral because you have the whole society paying a lot of money for something that it has no interest in, no input to, gets no value from. So I don't know if I would go that far to say it's immoral. I just think not something that I want to do. And you're starting to see in some countries in the UK, for example, they evaluate people in part for promotion and tenure on the basis of how have they influenced practice. I'm sure people game that system some. And, you know, I always found that if you write stuff that people find useful, you do really well in the traditional metrics of academia, citations. There are certainly people who have more than I do, but in my field, I think now one guy passed me. I was first in the field of information systems and AI, I'm down pretty far. Business analytics, I'm way ahead of anybody else. So academics have to have something to cite and something to learn from. So it can work in that way, even if you write stuff that people find useful. So the modern university's business school is kind of like a monastery, right? Where you soak up resources to do stuff that may or may not have any impact outside the walls of the monastery. But we see, at least in the area of technical skills, we see the rise of boot camps and non-degree institutions. And lots and lots of people are flocking there. And, and recruiters from Google and Facebook, they don't really care if you have a CS degree. I mean, if you went through a boot camp, it might be just as good. But we don't really, for business, we don't really see anything, you know, like that, right? You don't have a boot camp where you learn to be a manager. That's a very interesting idea. There are some quite progressive schools, Southern New Hampshire University, Western Governors University, that have online programs, not general management. I mean, I suppose you could argue even that the idea of a general management degree is a little bit antiquated, given that business can be so incredibly specialized. But, you know, if you want to learn about social media marketing, I think you can probably learn that as well in a certificate program as you could in a really highly prestigious university. Maybe better because, you know, in the highly prestigious universities, I'm sure you've seen this at Berkeley, really hard to get people who are considered academically respectable and who know something about these highly up-to-the-minute fields like social media marketing. You end up having to bring in adjuncts to do that, and they pay them horribly, and they tend to leave pretty quickly, but really hard to get tenure-track faculty to do that kind of work. There is. There's a bit of a lag just because when a topic is hot in the PhD programs, it's typically there's a lag in the production process by the time people make it out into the job market. And the other thing I think is that at least until you get tenure, you're more or less constrained from interacting too much with industry. I mean, you can get industry databases and you can do some research within industry, but you know, actually interfacing in a kind of quasi-consultant role is virtually impossible until you've passed that tenure hurdle. I think that's true. 
true. And then once you get tenure, you can do whatever you want. And most of the people I talk to say, most of the tenured faculty say, hey, you know, I want to have an impact on business. Now that I don't have to write this stuff anymore that nobody will ever read, I want to start having an impact. Not everybody does that, of course. And I think, you know, there's something to be said. If you can create incredibly fantastic new supply chain algorithms or economic models or even theories that are going to really transform the particular discipline, great. That's an impact of a different type. But if you're just going to write papers that nobody's going to read or cite or will ever make much of a difference, what's the point? And I know a lot of faculty members have gone to join tech companies and then all of a sudden they have access to these enormous databases that they could only imagine having access to and and they don't have to go through all the very strict uh, requirements for doing the research on human subjects and so forth. So it's a very, very tempting place to go to. Yeah. I mean, arguably, we should have some more human subjects regulations in some of those tech companies more than we do. But you're right. It is very appealing and they pay better and you get a chance to solve some of the world's most important problems in some of those companies. So, yeah, I think it's unfortunate that particularly in AI, you have so many great research scientists who were in universities who've been lured over into that other category. In other areas where physics, for example, there just aren't very many jobs in academic physics. And I was talking to somebody the other day from Stitch Fix, and they said the most common background that they have, and I saw this when I started doing research on data scientists a number of years ago, the most common background they have is experimental physics, PhDs. A lot of astronomers. Yeah, exactly. There's really big data scientists at Berkeley who's in astrophysics or astronomy, one or the other. But yeah, I mean, it's sad that we can't employ more people in physics and astrophysics and so on, but we certainly can employ them in data science, it seems. Now, you also have this consulting hat. You know, you worked with large consulting firms and so forth. A lot of them are trying to build out almost think tank-like organizations inside the consulting firms. What role do they play in the transmission of knowledge? I think they play a pretty important role, and they're starting to move in on academic territory. I mean, it's kind of ironic, but it's a woman who's the head of the Babson Board of Trustees, and she's a McKinsey consultant, and she runs the McKinsey Analytics Academy, which teaches people how to use analytics to manage their business better. So I like her a lot. She's a friend of mine. I don't know if anybody's ever pointed out the irony of that. But yeah, and look at the McKinsey Global Institute. They've done great work. You mentioned their work on big data. They were early. It wasn't hugely rigorous, but it was somewhat rigorous. And they've done a lot to acquaint managers with these ideas. So I've gone back and forth between academic institutions and consulting firms. I mean, the thing I like about academic institutions is they don't tell you what to do so much. I would not want to work full-time for one of these consulting firms anymore, but they can be a great source of client experience. They can be a great distribution channel for your ideas. And so I've been happy to be affiliated with a number of them. Yeah. Josh Bloom is the astronomy professor that I think you're thinking about. Yeah, exactly. I met him once at Berkeley. He co-founded a company that was acquired. So you mentioned a little bit also in the book about ethics, and I think it's really hard to find anyone who's talking about AI right now who's not also 
thinking about the human factors and the ethical implications, data governance, data ethics. How have your, has your thinking changed about this? I mean, I, I think when we, we go back to the early days, if you're automating a process, you've got people filling out forms and you're like, well, hey, what if these forms could just fill themselves out? I mean, the ethical implications are pretty insignificant. But once you get into replacing so much of human decision-making with automated decision, you can be hired at Amazon by an algorithm, supervised by an algorithm, compensated by an algorithm, and then fired by an algorithm. And at no point do you have a human being you know, making any of these decisions apart from the decision to adopt the algorithm. How has your thinking changed about ethics? Have you had to spend more time thinking about it? Have you had to go back and dust off some of that sociology to think about how people are changing their ethical frameworks as a result of, of AI? Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly interested in it. I've always been more of an optimist about these technologies. And I say, you know, you can, in terms of information technology and data and analytics and so on, you can focus on the offense side or the defense side. You know, I've always been more on the offense side. I want to, you know, use it to score points. But it does worry me a lot that we don't have much of an ethical framework for using this stuff. And since I get most of my good ideas from practicing managers, I am a little bit disturbed by the fact that there's a fair amount of talk about AI ethics, but not much in the way of activity within companies on it. And what you do have is mostly on the vendor side. So I wrote a little piece about what does an AI ethicist do? That was at Microsoft. I was talking recently to the head of AI ethics at Salesforce, Google, had some interesting things, although they fired one of their more ethics-oriented people recently. So the regular companies who use this stuff, I think, need to be worried about it as well. And they're rather slow to adopt that level of interest, I would say. It's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. And another thing that you mentioned in the book is, you know, you talk about vendor-driven versus strategic-driven adoption of these tools. You even coin a term cognitive strategy. You know, I've taught a course for years that was, it's been called data strategy, data science and data strategy. And I think the strategy part is super important and should drive everything you do. How have you begun to incorporate high-level strategic thinking? I mean, in the early days, presumably, you, you were focused more tactically, and now you're dealing with companies that are thinking at the high level about what their cognitive strategy ought to be. Yeah, you know, it's sort of what's the relationship of AI to the business that you want to be in, your business model. I have a good friend who works in private equity now, and for many, many years, he was preaching the gospel of network slash platform business models, two-sided platforms, etc. He did some interesting work showing that the valuations of those companies were higher, much higher than any other type of business model, certainly than selling things, certainly more than tech, more than finance, etc., and now he says, as in private equity, he finally gets some traction for this idea, but it was really hard to sell managers on it as a consultant. So I think what your business model in is very critical. AI supports some better than others. What business function should you really address with AI? I mean, you can't put equal amounts into everything that you do. It shouldn't be sort of random acts of AI around the organization. So how are we going to transform marketing? The really hard thing is, you know, AI typically bites off things in little pieces. 
uh, say in that book, The AI Advantage, that these kind of low-hanging fruit applications generally succeed much more readily than the big moonshots. But if you want to make an impact, you have to say, okay, how can I put together a lot of these little small projects into something that ultimately transforms customer service or marketing or finance or whatever we need to do to make this company work well. So I think it's really important if you're going to make all those little bets to think very carefully about in what part of the organization is it going to happen. I mean, you could say, well, we'll just let a thousand flowers bloom and see what pops up. But I don't think you'll really get terribly far that way. And I started out talking about Ping On. I think they're very good about saying, how can our AI capabilities, our 2000 data scientists, all of these image recognition, they developed a great image recognition capability for credit checks. Okay, let's start using that in collision damage assessment in our insurance business. So you can kind of move these ideas from one part of your organization to another if you kind of know what you're doing strategically. Yeah, so that takes us full circle to the question about the legacy companies versus the startups. Because, I mean, I think about uh, the automotive industry. For years, the automotive industry has been adopting computing, but they've done it in a very piecemeal manner. So, you know, you get a microprocessor that does your fuel injection, and then you get another microprocessor that does your braking, and then you got another one that, you know, might keep you from swerving into other lanes. And so you've got all these little microprocessors everywhere, all of which are improving all of these individual processes. But at the end of the day, they're not really talking to each other. They're not dipping into a central database and they're not reconceptualizing the concept of driving from scratch. And you look at a Tesla, which is really a server on wheels, the applications come straight out of the the overall strategy of the vehicle. Is it fair to say that an organization needs to orchestrate this in in a more coherent way if it's really going to make that next leap? I think it does. And I love the car analogies. I'm a big Tesla fan, I guess. I mean, I'm not a fan necessarily of Elon Musk, and I'm not a fan of the stock. (laughs) I should have been, but I've had two Teslas, and I love them. And as you say, the the software, the analytics, the AI are all nicely integrated with the rest of the car. And a friend of mine just bought a new Porsche Taycan. I don't know if you're familiar with this. First totally electric Porsche. Really nice car. Lovely car. I was so jealous, but he said their software sucks and they can't even identify me as the owner. And they keep telling me I can't drive this car because their software is so bad. And apparently their website's full of how bad Porsche software is. I don't know that that will be true of GM and Ford. Probably it will be, I'm guessing, when they start getting into autonomous vehicles and so on in a big way. But yeah, starting out from the beginning that way makes a huge amount of sense if you can get away with it. If not, you know, maybe you need to develop a whole new business unit, as GM has largely done with cruise automation. The big challenge is, you know, I have a friend who was senior human resources guy at GM, and he said our biggest challenge was just not overrunning these guys with our stupid bureaucratic demands. Leave them alone. And so that's great. But then how do you integrate it into, they want to make the whole company develop these kinds of products. That's the big problem. And how do you integrate it back in? Yeah, I'll be, I'll be talking to Michael Arena soon. He was in the HR group. That's who I'm referring to, actually. Yeah. Interesting. He's got a very interesting perspective on all this because he studies networks and organizations. Yeah. 
Well, Tom, thanks so much for talking today with us. I really appreciate it. I just want to remind everybody that there are a lot of great books that Tom's put together. And also, you publish all the time in what we might call translational research journals, right? I try to, yeah. Forbes, MIT Stone Management Review, Harvard Business Review. Those are my favorite spots. Yeah, and I, I don't know how you possibly keep up with so much, you know, when you do so much writing, but you do manage to keep abreast of what's happening in so many companies, not just kind of legacy companies, but you've also mentioned quite a few of the startups that you've been advising. And so super impressive. But this book is a great, I think it's just a great kind of survey, gets you familiar with all the different techniques and all the different approaches that companies are taking right now to becoming cognitive companies, to incorporating advanced techniques for gathering, processing, and acting on information. So thanks so much, Tom. And also don't forget all the other books. I'll feature these as well. Thanks for the plug. Yeah, we'll talk soon, hopefully in the flesh at some later date. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.